0: Well, the past few weeks, we have been uh, taking a look at overviews of the gospel to understand uh, not just what is in each of the four gospels, but rather to understand uh, the, the why. Why were they written in the first place? Why do we have the gospels that we have. Two weeks ago, we started off by looking at the gospel of John, which makes no sense because it was the last one written and it's the last of the four included in our text. But we started off with John because I don't know why I did. But so we started off with John two weeks ago. And um, maybe because John is the easiest of the four gospels to identify why it was written. John determines that for us in the text. At the end of his gospel, he says, all of this is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says, and he says at the beginning of his gospel, he says at the end of the gospel, that the whole point of his gospel is belief. John wrote so that his readers would believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and so that the readers could have new life in in his name. Last week we looked at Mark. Mark was not one of Jesus' disciples. John was. Um, Matthew, who we're talking about today, was one of Jesus' disciples, but Mark was not. He was kind of like the teenage boy tagging along, trying to, you know, hang out with the disciples, if you will. He was not one of them, but he knew them. He was associated with him. And we can glean from Scripture that. He kind of interned, if you will, under the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, who was his older cousin, but also under Peter. And the gospel of Mark is largely the gospel from Peter's perspective. And Mark's gospel identifies the suffering of Jesus. Mark says that Jesus' suffering, his willingness to suffer was central to his identity because Mark wanted us, his readers and his readers then, to understand that Jesus's point in coming to earth was to seek and to save and to serve others. Mark wanted his readers to identify Jesus's willingness to serve and say, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, it's not about who you are or where you're from. It is about your willingness to serve others. Mark says we can become great by following Jesus's model of serving. And this morning we're going to look at the book of Matthew. And like I said, Matthew was one of Jesus's disciples. um, And, Like Mark and like John and like Luke, Matthew wrote his gospel from a very unique perspective with a specific target audience in mind. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. We're going to just start in Matthew chapter one, because that's where Matthew started. So I'm going to pray, and then we are in Matthew chapter one. God, would you bless us this morning as we study your word? Use your word to form us and make us and mold us into the image of your son. Father, I pray that this morning, we would look at this text that we might be familiar with. And we'll look at these passages that don't necessarily seem to have a lot of application in them, but father, that you would use them to speak to us and to cause us to live out our faith in you. Father, bless us this morning. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So last month I drove uh, 4,200 miles uh, we, we had to get a new minivan because our old minivan died. We have not made the first payment on the new minivan yet. And there's like 5,300 miles on the van because that's how much driving we did this summer. Fortunately, now we are at an age um, with the boys where everybody is pretty much self-contained and entertaining themselves. When we bought this van, the reason that we decided on it over other vans was because of the uh, the, the USB ports in the van. We have four boys, which means there are always four phones, iPads, Nintendo Switches, or something that need to be plugged in at all times. And so we didn't decide on the color or the seat trim or any of that. It was a, can all of our kids have their stuff plugged in so we don't have to deal with them? Sorry, boys. Um, (laughs) But that was a a big deciding factor in buying this van, and it worked out very well. And so everybody um, was able to keep themselves entertained the entire drive, and then the entire drive, and then the entire, there was a lot of different drives, there was a lot of driving. Um, but one of the things that's nice about being at that stage is I don't have to have a Disney movie playing three inches behind my right ear anymore while I drive thousands of miles every summer to go visit my wife's family in Arkansas. Now I am free to uh, choose my own form of entertainment, and when the Rays are not playing while I'm driving, my typical entertainment that I choose for myself while driving is audiobooks, with one very notable exception. And my wife is not in here. I thought she was this morning. Um, When we drive through Memphis, I like to play every recorded version of Walking in Memphis and sing along. Um, She does not appreciate that. And she is very angry that Cher recorded a cover of Walking in Memphis. It's not good. Um, But I... And we drove through Memphis multiple times in each direction. So, um, but f- so for 40, 150 miles, I audiobook. And for 50 miles, I put on my blue suede shoes and board the plane. Um, but <laughs> all that said, audiobooks, it's my jam. Here's the thing about um, reading a series of audiobooks. and When you're driving thousands of miles, you have a whole lot of time to move through a book. You can finish a lot of books in no time. In fact, you can finish an entire series of books. But when you're doing one book after the other, there is no wait. There is no, no lag time. There's no buildup. It's just there. I always chuckle to myself when I'm listening to one book or sometimes like flipping through paper and reading a book like it's the 90s or something. And I get reintroduced to the main character a chapter or so into the book. I don't know if you're familiar with this or if it annoys or, or strikes anybody else as, as funny as it does me, but you... You just read seven, eight hundred pages about this character, and then you get into you know twenty or thirty pages into the new book, and the author seems to tell to want to tell you, hey, here's where this person went to school, here's their job, here's what they look like, here's all these things. They give this brief uh, biographical rundown of this character, and I always think, who's starting here? Who is starting? on book two or book three or book seven in this series? Why does the author feel the need to reintroduce the characters in this way? Who needs this introduction? And then I remember that I am fortunate enough that I get to read one book after the other because I'm not starting a series that isn't finished yet. But with the first audiences of the book, You can't just finish one book and then put out the next one two weeks later. It takes time. It takes months. It takes years. It takes publishing. It takes editors. And so for the people that are reading these books for the first time when they are original, there is a couple year gap between the last chapter of book one and the first chapter of book two. And so sometimes they need a refresher. They need that reminder of how this person connects to that world and how that world connects to this person. When people have to wait, they need a refresher on who is who and how everybody connects. When it's been a while, you need a reminder of the previous book and how that previous story connects to the story that is about to be told. The same principle that is seen in every series of, you know, mystery novels or dystopian sci-fi thrillers are also at work in Matthew's Gospel. When Matthew began to write his gospel, he had a very specific audience in mind, namely a Jewish audience. The past few weeks, we've talked about how John spent the last years of his life in exile, because even though the Romans tried to execute him multiple times, it just wouldn't take. And when they're like, all right, we've tried to kill you, we've tried to kill you, you won't die. um, they, They exiled him. And so most scholars believe that John wrote the book of Revelation and at least a couple of his epistles from the island of Patmos, Um, And then some are split as to where he was when he wrote John, but it was either in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey or Patmos, which is just off the coast of Turkey. But either way, John was traveled. John went far and wide to proclaim the gospel. He had seen the church grow and spread, and he was writing to a wide audience of all kinds of different people. We said last week that it is believed that Mark wrote his gospel from Rome, likely with Peter at his side as Peter was awaiting his eventual execution. Mark wrote his gospel from the perspective of someone who had really seen the world and wanted a Roman audience to understand what it meant to follow Jesus. Luke, who we're going to talk about next week, was a physician. We, we meet him in the middle of the book of Acts. He traveled with the apostle Paul. He went on these missionary journeys. He went as far east as um, Palestine. He went as far west, possibly even as Spain. He traveled extensively. Matthew wrote to a group of people that stayed in Israel. We are told through church history that when the persecution of the church started in the book of Acts, that Matthew um, would have traveled to Ethiopia. We talked about the Ethiopian eunuch who became the first African believer in Jesus last summer when we were going through the the book of Acts. But um, church history tells us that Matthew also went to Ethiopia at this time and helped to start the church in Ethiopia. But then Matthew returned um, to Israel. Specifically, he returned to Galilee. We meet Matthew for the first time in um, the Gospels on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He is in Capernaum. He is a tax collector living and working in Jesus's backyard, essentially. And he returned to where he was from. He lived most of his life within a few miles of where so many of the accounts in his Gospel took place. And he wrote distinctly to the people that were surrounding him. Matthew wrote with a Jewish perspective to a Jewish audience the people that Matthew was writing his gospel for had heard their entire lives about what God had done for their nation. They went to, you know, I would say Sunday school, but they went to Saturday school. They went to their synagogues and they heard about what God had done. They heard about the miracles that God had performed. They heard about the prophets that God had sent. And yet for the people in Matthew's community at this time, before Jesus, there had been 400 years of silence. God had not sent a prophet. There had not been a national leader that they could point to, to say, this is God's appointed person. There had been none of that. And then Jesus shows up on the scene after 400 years of God's people saying, God, what are you doing? What's the plan? What comes next? So when Matthew wrote his gospel, he went out of his way to connect Jesus to the narrative of the old Testament in every way that he could. In fact, he starts the gospel like this. He says, this is the genealogy of, of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham. Your, your uh, translation might say the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So instead of Jesus, the Messiah, it might say Jesus Christ. Christ was not Jesus's nickname, uh, was not his nickname or his last name. It literally means the Messiah or the anointed one. And so Matthew from the very first pen strokes says Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to connect Jesus to David and I'm going to connect Jesus to Abraham. Not only does this place the gospel in Jewish history, but it is now a clear reference to Jesus's lineage. Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the anointed one is what Matthew says. He's writing about. He says, this is the one that our culture, our people have been saying for centuries that God would divinely appoint to lead and rule and serve our people. He would be a priest and a king. So from the onset, Matthew says, Jesus is from Abraham's line. He is one of God's chosen people, but he's also from David's line. He is royalty. And Matthew goes through all of this who's who of Old Testament characters to connect the story of Jesus to the story of the Old Testament. He says Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of, hang on, this name always gets me. You see it, it's up there. There we go. Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, not Salmon, ironically. Uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth. We just talked about Ruth and Boaz a few months ago. Um, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Matthew says Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of these huge figures in our faith, all of these huge figures in our history, Ruth, Rahab, Boaz, King David, these People are figures for us now in the 21st century AD, but in the first century, in the nation of Israel, these were not just, you know, figures that we have VeggieTales episodes about, but these were mythical figures to their nation's history. And Matthew is saying to his readers, the story of Jesus is connected to all of these stories that you've heard your entire life. In fact, the story of Jesus is the continuation of these stories that you have been told your entire life. Skipping ahead to the end of that genealogy. He says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Matthew says, think about it. There's a lot of symmetry there. That almost seems like a plan and like it was on purpose, right? Matthew is pointing God's people to the fact that Jesus had been God's plan all along. But Matthew didn't just connect Jesus with the characters of the Old Testament. He connected Jesus with the content of the Old Testament as well. There are more than 50 quotes or direct allusions to Old Testament passages in the book of Matthew, far more than any of the other gospels. One of the key elements of Matthew's gospel is showing how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies in the Old Testament. Ten times in the book of Matthew, and this is an Andrew paraphrase, but this happens... 10 times that some variation of this phrase takes place in the book of Matthew. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet or through the prophets. Every time Jesus fulfilled a prophecy, Matthew took a big flashlight and shined it back on the old Testament and said, huh, you see, you see who this is. Do you see what he's doing at the very beginning of the story? When the wise men show up and by the way, we like have the wise men in our nativity sets. We, we sing songs about them at Christmas time, but Mark and Luke and John, they don't include the wise men in their narrative at all. Only Matthew does. Why? Because the wise men connect Jesus to Old Testament prophecy. Matthew chapter 2 starts off like this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came and uh, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. We got a new clicker. So sometimes I got to there we go. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea. They replied for this is what the prophet has written. Just like a few weeks ago, when we were in the book of John We talked about how John declared from the very beginning of his gospel that it was all about belief in the new life that comes when someone puts their faith and trust in Jesus. Matthew, from the very beginning of his gospel has said, listen, I'm going to demonstrate that Jesus is the continuation of the work that God has been doing for all of human history, that the prophets foretold his life, his ministry, and that he is the promised Messiah that the people of Israel have been looking for for centuries. Matthew says, I'm going to not just show you that he could be, I'm going to demonstrate that he is, and then I'm going to show you what that means. So once he established that Jesus was who he said he was, once he established that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham, he was one of God's chosen people, he was a descendant of David, he was an heir to the throne and a fulfillment of prophecy, Matthew goes out of his way to, again, give us um, more perspective from a Jewish context than any of the other Gospels. And he connects everything to Jesus, who God's people had been waiting for for hundreds of years. Matthew records more of Jesus' sermons than any of the other Gospels as well, which is why if you flip over just a few pages in your Bible and you get to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, if you have a red-letter Bible, you have like three chapters straight of Jesus talking. Nowhere else in the text is there that much recorded speaking of Jesus. But Matthew goes out of his way to say, now here's who Jesus is. Here is how he connects. And here is what he said, because he wanted his readers to understand that the kingdom that Jesus was talking about, the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming was different than the kingdom than they were expecting. One of the reasons that scholars speculate that Matthew was able to record so much of Jesus's uh, preaching and teaching is because he was a tax collector. Matthew worked for the Roman government in Israel. That's not a way to be very popular in the first century in Israel, but that's what Matthew did. And the tax collectors were required to learn some uh, some sort of shorthand. Think about like a court stenographer and how they can record so many things going on at once. The tax collectors were required to be able to do that so they could keep accurate records of who paid what and who owed what. And so when Matthew began to write his gospel, some scholars speculate that he was the one taking copious notes as Jesus was preaching, which is why he could recall so many huge chunks of Jesus's dialogue in sermons, like the Sermon on the Mount, that illustrate the kind of kingdom that Jesus was talking about and was ushering in, which is why Matthew could point his readers to the fact that, listen, the kingdom that Jesus is talking about is not the kingdom that you were expecting. And at the end of his gospel, after Matthew had gone out of his way to connect Jesus to the old Testament, and after he had gone out of his way to connect Jesus to the prophecies and to the national identity of Israel, he did something that must have blown the minds of every one of his readers. Remember, these people have been set up to know and fully understand that Jesus is Jewish royalty. He is an heir to King David. So much of Matthew's account is geared specifically to the Jewish people that when they were reading this, they were thinking, this is it. This is, he's going to tell us what our place is. He's going to tell us what God's plan is for us. And we're going to, you know, start dominating the region and eventually the world. But this is how Matthew ends his gospel. Apparently I duplicated that slide. This is how Matthew ends his gospel. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. What? Matthew, you spent 28 chapters connecting Jesus to Israel. You spent 28 chapters connecting Jesus to the old Testament. And now you're telling us to go to all nations. And Matthew says, yeah, yeah. This is what Jesus said. He said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Hey, you know how you felt for 400 years like I wasn't with you? Here's my promise. I am with you always. But here's my command. It's not just about you. Yeah, I understand how the Old Testament was so much about you. And I understand how us as a nation, we had this pride and we had this sense that God was doing something unique in our nation. And he was, but remember, Jesus was always God's purpose. Jesus was always God's plan. And God's plan was to use us and to use our nation, not just for our nation, but for every nation of the world. At the end of Matthew's gospel, he records Jesus's words saying that, listen, my kingdom is for all nations. And I'm guessing his readers would have been shocked by that. But Matthew needed to make sure that his audience understood that Jesus was not just a Messiah for some people, but that Jesus was the Messiah for all people. So what do we do with that? What do we do with a 24 minute overview of a 28 chapter book? How do you apply something like that when something is so broad. This is what I feel like God is saying through just these concepts here in Matthew. After enduring 400 years of silence, no prophets, no judges, no real leaders. God's people must have wondered whether or not he had deserted them. After centuries of God regularly communicating to his people They found themselves without a genuine prophet or a spokesman for God for generations. And then we get to the book of Matthew and we're taught about the ministries of John the Baptist. We're taught about what Jesus did. We're taught taught about what Jesus empowered the disciples to do. And God's people were reminded that God had not forgotten about them. God's silent, God's silence during that 400 year period was a part of his redemptive plan. God hadn't forgotten, he remembered his people. And Matthew made that clear. Fortunately for us, none of us are going to go 400 years in silence from God because none of us are going to live 400 years. But when we go four days, four hours, four months, four years, when we've been praying and praying and praying and waiting and waiting and waiting and expecting and expecting and expecting for God to show up and do something, it can be exhausting. But our timing is not God's timing and our plan is not God's plan. God remembers his people in his time. So that's the first thing that I would apply to this overview of Matthew. A reminder and an assurance that even when God feels silent, God has a plan and that God is at work. The other thing that really jumps out to me, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, and there's a couple of ladies that are like doing a Bible study on the women in the Bible and the women that pop out of Jesus's genealogy. Let me tell you, we've had some discussions, haven't we ladies about, man, there's some messed up people in this list of Jesus's genealogy. When we look at the genealogy of Jesus, it's not just a list of names that Matthew is recording. It is a connection To stories of how God uses people, how God uses flawed and messed up people to accomplish his purposes. If you ever wonder if God can use you, go read the stories connected to the people in the genealogy of Jesus, and you will say, yeah, if God could use them, he can use me. If God could use people that are known liars, If God can use people that are idolaters and adulterers, he can use me. If God can use people that have messed up in this many ways, God can certainly use me. And if God can use them, then God can use us. And if God remembered his people, then he will remember his people now. Whether or not we are connected to the nation of Israel biologically, Matthew illustrates that Jesus is connected to all of redemptive history. Matthew illustrates that Jesus is not a new story that should only stand on its own, but rather Matthew illustrates that Jesus is God's fulfillment of every story before him and the starting point for every story after him. Matthew shows us that Jesus has always been God's plan and that because of that, we can be assured of where we stand with God. Jesus has always been God's plan and Jesus's plan has always been go into all the nations and make disciples. Do you wonder where you stand with God from the beginning of time, from Genesis chapter three, when the plan of Jesus was set into motion, God's plan was to redeem you and to redeem me through the nation of Israel and through Jesus Christ. God's plan has always been Jesus and Jesus's plan has always been to redeem the nations. Think about that for a second. Matthew, why did he write it? He wrote this book to a distinctly Jewish audience to show them that Jesus is for everyone. And if Jesus is for everyone, that means that there is no one that Jesus is not for. And if Jesus remembered his people, and if God remembered his people, and if God used his people, shouldn't we be assured that our heavenly father will remember us and will use us to accomplish his purposes, namely to go into all the nations and make disciples so that they too can know the salvation and the forgiveness and the relationship with God that we can have when we recognize Jesus as Messiah. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that our story is connected to a much bigger story And I thank you that none of us are the main character of our story. But father, you are. Father, the story that we get to live out is a story of redemption and a story of forgiveness. Because when the fullness of time had come, after 400 years of silence, you sent your son into the world. And now we can experience new life by believing in him. Father, this morning, I pray that we would be encouraged that you are a God who remembers your people, that you are a God with a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us, and that you can and will use us for your purposes. Father, bless us this morning. Bless us as we sing, as we give, and as we fellowship together. And it's in Jesus' name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.